Well, good morning and welcome to the second sermon in our series on Philippians. And our reading this morning was Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Paul is in prison, but it's not so bad. He's not in a dungeon. He's been allowed to rent a house for this enforced period of detention in Rome. Because he's a Roman citizen, he's allowed various privileges, such as free visiting, but it is still prison. In fact, he's chained to a guard 24-7. So there's no privacy, even for bodily functions, no chance to get out and meet people in the marketplace or to join in church services, never mind continuing his travels. To add to Paul's woes, some Christian preachers had resented his prominence verses 15 to 17. Now they were glad that he'd been removed from the field, leaving them free to build their reputations and followings. They thought he would be upset by their success, and this seems to have motivated them all the more, rubbing salt into the wound. So, as Sue said last week, we might expect Paul to be downhearted, discouraged and even depressed. But this letter is full of joy. Paul does not waste energy wishing things were different. He knows that God is in control and is working out his own purposes. While he's locked up, he prays for his friends and the churches which he has planted and he writes to them. He remembers Philippi well. That's where he was thrown into a much less pleasant prison cell for the night and then was released miraculously by an earthquake in Acts 16. He remembers the people he met who formed a church before he moved on. What would they think about Paul's apparently helpless situation now? Would they think that God had abandoned him? Why didn't he release Paul again now, just as he had from their own local jail? So Paul writes in verse 12, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So there's no word of self-pity. Paul understands the sovereignty of God. He knows that his suffering is under the control of an all-powerful, all-loving God. His suffering and ours has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan. God only brings things or allows them to come into our lives, which are for his glory and our good. So Paul's not thinking about his own discomfort and inconvenience in prison, but about the advance of the gospel. Now, many pe how many people are hearing and responding to the good news? I wonder if I would adopt such a positive attitude if I were in his shoes. When we're in hard times, what is it that we talk about most when we get a chance to talk? Our go-to topic reveals a lot about our inner life and our ongoing walk with the Lord. To be honest, I've probably chatted more about the difficulties of the pandemic than about the growth of God's kingdom. And all that has happened to Paul has actually served to help the gospel along. He mentioned three ways in which this has been true. Firstly, everyone knows why he's in prison 
and they know that it's because of Jesus, in verse 13. The palace guard, called the Praetorian Guard, was a huge body of elite troops who were powerful and influential, and there may have been as many as 10,000. They all knew, he says, and everyone else as well. Paul was chained to a guard all the time, but not the same one. Each guard no doubt got a clear explanation of who Jesus is and what he offers, and no doubt some of them became Christians, and word got about. The transforming message about Jesus was spreading inexorably. Perhaps some guards arrived on duty with questions and with curiosity. Secondly, other Christians were encouraged to be bold. Verse 14. Now, I struggled to get my head round this because one might expect Christians to be more afraid with their most courageous spokesman under arrest. But not so. Paul has such a positive attitude to it and uses his bad situation so effectively that others actually lose their fear of speaking up for Jesus. Paul seems to have won favour among the guard. Perhaps the very presence of a high-status prisoner, so clearly there for Christ, meant that less prominent Christians were left alone by the authorities. Paul is delighted that others are speaking out more courageously. Thirdly, Christ is being preached. As we've said, some preachers seem to have been acting from impure motives, taking advantage of Paul's absence from public life to build their own reputations and influence. Sad to say, not every successful preacher has a pure heart. Preachers are still sinful and easily tempted to pander to our own vanity, desiring success for our own selves rather than for Christ. We do well to be cautious and a little sceptical about celebrity evangelists and preachers. Not all are what they appear. Some will be attention-seeking or even money-grabbing charlatans. Yet Paul refuses to be discouraged by this. As long as the gospel gets out, he's not fussed about who does it or why. Did you know that the study of missions is called missiology? George Verwer coined the term messiology because God so often graciously uses people and groups who make all kinds of mess, mistakes and blunders. In fact, he wrote a book on it. I think Paul would agree. Interestingly, though, Paul does not quibble at mixed motives, but he does speak out in the strongest terms against preachers who give mixed messages who water down the gospel to make it more palatable. In Galatians 1, he says, If anyone preaches another message than the one we preached, let him be accursed. The message matters and must be communicated clearly and fully. The messengers may have all kinds of failures without serious harm if they keep the message straight. So Paul insists on rejoicing. Why? Because despite his own personal discomforts, Christ is being preached and made known more widely. God is in charge. He is sovereign. But what do we mean by that? God's sovereignty is his unstoppable power and authority over all things, 
including our human will. And his power is exercised with infinite wisdom, justice and mercy through Jesus Christ. Nothing can successfully stop anything that God intends to bring about. And God never does anything meaninglessly or randomly or without an infinitely wise purpose. God never wrongs anyone. All that he does is righteous and just and the ultimate aim is that he be glorified for his mercy and his grace toward undeserving sinners. So when there's opposition to the gospel, it often results in the church growing even faster. The gospel of Christ cannot be stopped. Paul goes on to speak of his own personal confidence in verse 19. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He does not expect his imprisonment to be forever or to be the last phase of his journey. He's sure the Philippians are praying for him and senses, as we will see later in the letter, that God has more work for him to do before the end of his life. Prayer on his behalf will be effective through God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus. Our prayers do make a difference. But it's not a magic bullet to solve every situation. It's not prayer that will bring Paul's deliverance in itself. It is God who will do that. We pray to God and he answers as he sees his best. Paul ends our passage with this statement of purpose in verse 20. Now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is Paul's driving force, the inner motivation which powers his testimony, his persistence, his courage. What passion! Christ is what matters, his glory, his kingdom, his gospel, his church, his ultimate victory when he returns. And Christ is most glorified when we are totally sold out to him. And that is also the most satisfying way to live. Amen. <laughs>